with issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 283 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I got a hole in one. Woo! Hey, Mickey's been playing crazy golf without me, the bitch. I'm sorry, I will take you to Junkyard Golf. This is not sponsored, but oh my God, it's a place of dreams. Crazy golf dreams. Fucking love crazy golf. A lot of neon. I've been there. I think I went to one in Shoreditch, possibly. Yeah, it's sort of near Liverpool Street. Yeah, yeah. I've done that. Mm. It's good fun. It's great fun. I'm guessing they're not just like cruddy old windmills and that sort of thing. No, although I do love a cruddy old windmill and I do miss the fact that there were no windmills involved, but there's like an Iron Maiden and an electric chair and all sorts of fun things and a room full of dangly neon bits. And crucially, you can get pissed while you do it. So, Or you can, you know, just have a couple of rum cocktails and pace mm-hmm. yourself, Jen. Yep, yep, that as well, yep. There is one in Cambridge that you can play crazy golf inside. I don't know why I've never been there, given that I love crazy golf. Well, actually, that's not true. I do know why I haven't been there. I went... It was full of wankers. Me not swearing is not going very well. <laughs> that's not a swear word. No. That's just okay. descriptive of a lot yeah. of the British population. <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I apologise for how I sound. I should probably say that to start with. I've been poorly. Interesting use of past tense there, Jen, don't you mm-hmm. think? And just FYI, if anyone finds my pants in a hedge, please DM me. What's happened to your pants, Hannah? Well... Jen, as you know, I went on holiday. Yeah. And as you also know, I had to go to a lot of funerals last week. Mm-hmm. So I, on the way back from holiday, I stopped to pick my mum up so I could take her to these funerals so she could come and stay at my house. And my mum bought a lot of stuff with her. She always overpacks, always. And I live upstairs, obviously, as you know. So I parked outside my house and I carried all of her stuff up the stairs for her. A suitcase and uh, the endless bags that I don't know what was in any of them, but there were just endless amounts of bags. And by the time I went back downstairs to get my stuff out of the car, it had all been stolen. Ritual oh, shit. No. Yeah. Yeah. And essentially among that was a rucksack that I'd bought back off my holiday. So they didn't get my passport. They didn't get my purse. They didn't get my phone. They got my dirty pants, a really, really fucking nice jumper you could no longer buy from Fat Face. And an incredibly expensive pair of winter trousers. But nonetheless, I don't think that's what they were hoping for. I think they were hoping for something else. People do pay good money on the internet for dirty pants, I'm told. Obviously, I don't have any uh, primary knowledge of this. Just uh, <laughs> It's anecdotal. Yeah. A lot of people have told me that they basically just throw stuff into hedges as they're walking along. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, are all of my dirty pants going to be in my neighbour's front gardens? But I had a little look and they weren't. No joy. No dice. Fuckers. I've had a great week. Oh, well, I mean, don't want to show off. I'm Jen Offord and I am Santa'd out. How many times have you seen the big fella? Three times in eight days. Can I see some photographs, please? Because one of my favourite things in the whole world is when my cousins send me photos of their kids. I don't know what it is about our family, but they fucking hate Santa. <laughs> All the <Same>. photos <laughs> of the kids just going, there's <laughs> this man sitting there, got a lovely one of my cousin that you know of her kid just basically burying himself <laughs> in her like I don't want Santa I don't like him with one of the meetings my friend took the picture with another one of the meetings she's the only child that refused to look at the camera and I do have one where she's just having the best time with uh, St Nicholas who arrived in Harwich by boat sort of like James Bond but it was like the RNLI <laughs> so a bit less glamorous <laughs> Like a Viking St. Nicholas. 
yeah, if the Vikings had a lifeboat service, then yeah, <laughs> like that. With a vicar. And then they sort of like lure you into the church. Same thing we did last year. They gave us some chocolate. She wants to go back. I mean, I'd probably still fall for it. And I'm a little bit older than Lyra. For sure. I've got a great video of her singing Jingle Bells. She is, as I texted her dad yesterday, good value on a dance floor, in inverted commas. The dance (laughs) floor is the stage at the front of the church. Uh, Just to add to those family photos where the kid doesn't like Santa, I've got a glorious one of my mum when she was little. Santa's not even in the photo. She's made him get off his chair. and She's just stood on her own. (laughs) (laughs) My mum said to me, a sensible child would realise that, you know, she's seen Father Christmas last week, she's seen him again on Saturday, she's seeing him on Sunday, you know, that's quite a lot of time. She'll probably see him about three times in London with her dad. And I was like, Mum, when you think about it, the whole Father Christmas thing, like he delivers the presents to all the girls and boys in the world in one night, it doesn't really stack up, does it? Like, like a sensible child would probably figure out that's bollocks, in fairness. Can I just say we need to revisit this when we're having the conversation about Superman? I was and, just thinking the, exactly the, the same. can probably afford to give it less about what people should have worked out by now. Ah, <laughs> uh, good point. Well, that's, I'm good sure, whetted some ears' appetites indeed. <laughs> yeah. So, coming up, Lindsay Young, curator of the excellent Women in Revolt exhibition. It's got an exclamation mark. Do I have to go, Women in Revolt? Yeah. Exhibition. Yeah. At sure. uh, Tate Britain, talks to me about punk art reclaiming agency a three-minute scream and well you know revolting women in all of the best possible ways i chat to historian cassia sinclair about women drivers and her new book race to the future and in jenny off the books there's huge news in women's football and in honor of this week's rated or dated we are all wearing our knickers outside of our tights as we watch 1978 superman I found my knickers in a hedge in Cambridge. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm not, because I've got a distinct shortage of knickers at the minute. But first, smash his face into desk. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we are putting on the Riz. I don't know what that means. Okay, so Riz is the uh, Oxford University Press word of the year hannah okay and what it means is it is a shortened version of charisma right that's what we're doing we're being very charismatic although i do think there is a sexual connotation to it and uh as much as i like you hannah maybe we're not putting on the whiz in that respect just being charismatic in general part of me drinking ribena (laughs) in my dressing gown coughing every 30 seconds <laughs> you're not finding charismatic jen Anna, you're, al- you're always charismatic effortlessly charismatic one of the other contenders was beige flag incidentally which right. is uh, an expression that i enjoy very much so a red flag is when someone like oh you know red flag danger a beige flag is like boring or possibly know. that there's going to be a lot of quiche at a wedding yeah i mean that if i said like, i really like quiche you might go, oh, beige flag. Literally I do really like quiche. So do I, Hannah, but people think that's boring. What's wrong with them? Moving on. You'll remember <laughs> a few weeks back the long-awaited ruling by the Supreme Court on the government's controversial plan to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. I do, sadly. <laughs> yes, yeah, sadly. Upholding a previous ruling by the Court of Appeal, the UK's highest court deemed the policy to be unlawful. I mean... Couldn't have seen that coming, could you? 
Right, so there are a few reasons for this, reasons that could well have been anticipated by the Czechs Notes lawmakers <laughs> of this country. But the main reason was because, guess what? That's right. Anyone sent there could be left open to human rights breaches. Now, I'm not a lawmaker, but that does seem quite obvious to me. I mean, agreed. Still, the Tories work in mysterious ways, yeah. not least to their own deputy chairman, Lee Anderson, who part oh God, of the... How is he deputy chairman? How is he yeah, anything? How is he? Yeah, just <laughs> how He's part of the checks notes, democratically elected body charged with making laws in this country. You might remember he responded that we should just fucking crack on and do it anyway, because laws schmores, right? Yeah. And indeed, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said we could just change the law. The human rights bit is sort of complicated and at the same time not very complicated at all. If you forcibly place someone in the care of another country, you kind of need to make sure that it's going to be okay for them there. The UK hadn't actually finalised a treaty with Rwanda on how okay our exported asylum seekers might be. Just a sort of informal note, a memorandum of understanding. I think in legal terms, that's one up from like spitting on your hand and <laughs> shaking it, right? I'll remind you at this stage that the government is charged with making the law. Oh, well, just change it. Make spitty hands legally binding, eh? But in the meantime, what are we going to do about these goddamn small boats, huh? Well, in what you might consider the final flip of the bird to our legal system, the government says, maybe just send our lawyers there too. I don't really understand how this would address any of the concerns raised by the several courts that have looked at this now, but apparently it could be part of a treaty. The thing that they should have agreed with the Rwandan government rather than an MOU to seal the deal. Is it worth mentioning at this point that this policy was announced 18 months ago has made no progress, already cost the taxpayer £140 million, Ooh. and that legal migration, legal migration, hit a record high of 745,000 last year. It's almost, it's almost like they're on the way out and they know they'll never actually have to implement this, right? To be honest, that's how I feel about almost everything they say at the minute. I just think this is designed to get votes it's never going to happen it's, it's just never going to absolutely like everything they do it's just absolutely batshit isn't it you just you're like uh, like yeah everything they announce so jen i wanted to talk about a case in warren ohio where a woman has been charged with abuse of a corpse mm. after deep breath having a miscarriage Apologies if anyone finds this upsetting, but I suppose that's the point, ain't it? Miscarriages are something women endure. So why would you want to make that suffering worse or deeply political? This story got a lot more publicity last week when civil rights activists drew attention to it on Twitter, but it started on the 22nd of September when 33-year-old Brittany Watts tried to plunge a toilet after having a miscarriage while using a bathroom. I'm not entirely sure how it was that the police came to be called because increasingly local papers in the US aren't making their content available in Europe. And on that note, thanks to listener Jude who helped me get my hands on the original newspaper report. According to forensic pathologist Dr George Sturbens, the fetus died before passing through the birth canal. He added Watts had visited the hospital twice before the miscarriage. Nonetheless, 
Warren Municipal Court Judge Terry Ivanchak determined there was a probable cause for the case to be bound over to the ground jury. Defence attorney Tracy Timko represented Watts during the preliminary hearing. In a statement, she said her client, quote, suffered a tragic and dangerous miscarriage that jeopardised her own life. Rather than focusing on healing physically and emotionally, she was arrested and charged with a felony and is fighting for her freedom and her reputation. Miss Watts learned days before that this miscarriage was inevitable and that the foetus could not survive outside the womb due to gestational age. The foetus died in utero. Timco also argued that no law requires a mother suffering from a miscarriage of a non-viable foetus to bury or cremate the remains. She added, Women miscarry in toilets every day. If the state of Ohio expects these women to fish those remains from the toilet and deliver them to a hospital, funeral home or crematorium, the laws need change. Regardless of politics or religion, this matter hinges on the law. It is a travesty that Miss Watts was charged and we will continue to fight. I mean, I've nothing to add to that. More news when it happens. Oh, man. I mean, where do you start with that? It's just so senselessly, senselessly cruel, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. I don't know what's going to happen with pregnant women in America, to be honest, whether they want to be pregnant and lose their babies or whether they don't want to be pregnant and they're looking for an abortion. It's just terrible. It's just well, genuinely thing, terrible. Well, isn't it? Because if you start, you know, if even people who do want to get pregnant and have babies face this kind of fucking ridiculous intervention, then, you know, it certainly put me off. Yeah, quite. Do you want a bit of good news, Jen? Yes, please. Well, the science gap is shrinking. What the hell does that mean? I hear you ask. According to researchers at Stanford University, the most cited authors across all scientific disciplines have previously been men. No surprise there. Nope. In fact, men outnumbered women 3.93 times among (laughs) those who started publishing before 1992. And now, well, they still outnumber women. This is the good news section, not the fucking (laughs) earth-shattering news section. But that gap is only 1.36 times amongst authors who started publishing after 2011. Stanford researcher John Ioandis, and I just want to stop to say, I used to share a flat with a guy called John Ioandis. I don't think it's the same guy. (laughs) He said, quote, Our work documents substantial shrinkage over time of the inequalities between men and women in the top echelons of scientific citation impact. But there is substantial room for further improvements in most scientific fields. I just want to suggest maybe if you put a woman's quote out, that might have helped get that figure (laughs) down to 1.35. But here we go. (laughs) That is a very good point, (laughs) Hannah. Oh, dear. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we ask the listeners, hmm, do you want to just go and have a baby instead? No. (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay, so if the statistics didn't already make it abundantly clear, a new poll has found that nearly one in seven human resources executives believe that men are better suited to senior management positions than women. The survey for the charity the Young Women's Trust also found that nearly one in five were reluctant to hire women who they thought might go on to start families. I mean, how do you tell? Yeah. Recently married, 
age or do you just cover your bases by discriminating against all female applicants? I mean, that would be the fairest thing, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. Because after all, young women are silly and old women are mad. I mean, you can't win, can you? So just don't bother with them. You want to know what's even more depressing, Hannah? I do. Okay. The poll found that younger HR managers were more likely to discriminate against female applicants than older managers when it came to dishing out the top jobs. Actually, that doesn't surprise me. Really? I think when you're young, Mm. you don't always think about motherhood and what it might mean. When you're older, either you might have had a baby yourself or certainly, Mm. you know, women around you, colleagues, sisters, friends. So you might have just given the subject a little bit more thought i will say anecdotally and uh, other women i've spoken to about this have agreed that when you're trying to get around town with a buggy young women are the worst offenders in terms of getting out of your way or like trying to make space for you on the pavement etc etc and i kind of remember being a bit like that as well like uh just because you've had a baby like why should i Blah, blah blah i've got as much right to the pavement as you do and there is almost like a feeling like just because you gave up on life. Um, yeah. <laughs> and obviously now I look back on that and I cringe very much. Just because you're a horrifying vision of my own future doesn't mean I'm going to exactly. move out of the way. Just don't be a cunt. Um, that's to my former self as much as anyone else who, uh, yeah, whatever. Although I would say also, like when I was like 28 or whatever, I totally believed you could just progress at the same rate in the workplace as a woman. I totally believed that we'd like we'd done that already. And that was actually like one of my feminist light bulb moments was realising that people around my age who were women just weren't getting promoted anymore. And I was yeah. like, why is that? Oh, hang on. I know why. Anyway, sorry, that's a bit of a tangent, but a relevant one. Um, the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development told The Guardian that the results were, and I quote, concerning, while the Department of Business and Trade, headed up by Minister for Women... Kemi Badenoch declined to comment the newspaper said so yeah it's really interesting as someone who's never had children obviously mm-hmm. I've got to say I have been discriminated against merely for but having the potential to have children yeah and and it's actually been openly said to me I covered someone's maternity cover for them while mm. they went off and had their kid and when they came back they realized they wouldn't be able to come back to the the old job that they did because they couldn't the hours and mm-hmm. and rather than give the job to me who had proved that they could do the job, they gave it to a man because, and I quote, and it was said to me, well, every time we give this job to a woman, she just fucks off and has a baby, so why would we do it again? Mm-hmm. Everyone should work for standard issue, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by Lindsay Young, curator of the superb Women in Revolt exhibition, taking up several large rooms and a must-see porter cabin at Tate Britain until April the 7th. Lindsay, hello. Hi, hello. It has got an exclamation mark though, is it? Women in revolts. Do you shout the title? No, go stealthily into it. <laughs> a quiet revolution from Lindsay. A quiet revolution. I've never heard an exhibition described as some, some rooms in a porter cabin, um, but I think <laughs> no, but I, well, what I'm going to get to this is that it is vast, but I am going to come to this. It's not just, you know, you go in and have a nice Some wander around. It's, it's a lot of rooms and a poor cabin. You've had to go outside for this. <laughs> Clearly my description, not up to scratch. So tell us about the exhibition and what drew you to wanting to work on it. So the exhibition is kind of the freshest of its kind in the UK. Um, and I always want to caveat that by, by saying that 
lots of women have been working on this material for years. So there are many archivists, artists, curators who've been making exhibitions about this feminist art moment, but it's never been in an institution. It's never been in the big kind of national collection. So that's kind of what makes it unique. And also it's scale. So it's actually um, the biggest exhibition Tate Britain's ever staged. Wow. Uh, which kind of happened by accident, just because I kept putting more and more stuff in. <laughs> and that's because I knew I'd have one chance to make this, because you only really get a chance like this once every kind of 10 years as a curator. And, you know, the moment was right, so I went for it and I just kept filling it up. So yeah, so it's an exhibition that covers 20 years of feminist art practice in the UK, but very much from a working class perspective, from a kind of working class socialist perspective. And I really, I'm really bored of art history and really bored of the things you're supposed to know mm-hmm. and of those kind of really patriarchal narratives. So I wanted to, to really explode that. Because of that, there aren't stars. We don't focus on stars. We focus on a constellation of different women. So there are over 100 and I think it's about 114 individuals and about 139, 140, if you include collectives. And I've made a concerted effort not to kind of uh, pull people out and push them forward, just to look at everyone. Why I made it, there's a few reasons. So I'm from a working class background. I'm Scottish. And when I got to Tate, I didn't understand. uh, I didn't understand it. And I kind of, I still don't really. And I think that's because the art world is generally run by posh men yeah and as much as we try and pretend it's not still run by posh men it is still run by posh men certainly eight years ago when I joined Tate I, I couldn't find a way to tell the stories I was interested in because the work by women particularly working class women just wasn't in our collection and that's the stuff I was interested in so I started to think about how would I tell a story and there's another in- intersecting narrative which is I was brought up by a single mum um, oh, really same. amazing left-wing socialist single mom, and I'd grown up with with her politics and my family's politics. When we were little, I lived in London with her, and I would kind of see her working so hard. And in the streets, I would see as a little kid the poll tax riots, and I also she worked during the AIDS epidemic. And I thought, God, if all this stuff has happened, there must be women's art that responds to it. It can't just be Henry Moore, then the YBAs. Like, there must be something happening in the middle. And so I set out to kind of tell that story. But also, it is a present to my mum. So my mum died three years ago, and I started making the show when she was alive, but when she was working as a, well, an unpaid carer for her partner. And I was really as I had been for a long time, pissed off with her lot, pissed off with the way life had treated her, the way men had treated her. So she knew the exhibition was happening and that it was happening for her, but sadly uh, didn't get to see it. I'm so sorry. She sounds amazing. Tell us her name. Gail. Gail. And actually there's another, so we take over lots of rooms and a porter cabin (laughs) and there's a flag on the roof. And the flag on the roof says, this is a Gail warning. And it's a work by Rose Finn Kelsey that's about ecological concerns. Sadly, Rose Van Kelsey died really young as well. But I I and her estate worked to have that particular work because I see I see the work as a warning. Um so if you if you mess with our mothers we'll come for you. <laughs> Do you know what? It is so vast and I love that you go into a room and it isn't just as you get in some galleries and some exhibitions and I understand why it's done, but just like a couple of works placed around the room. There are cabinets full of stuff. You could spend a full day there and still only get halfway around, I think. There's a lot to take in. And I found it a really visceral experience. 
not least because of Gina Birch's three-minute scream, which leaks into the whole space and is sort of disturbing and then it's sort of background noise, then it comes in again, which is very clever and kind of grounds you and disturbs you at the same time. But also, I laughed a lot. And just hearing you describe where this has come from, like working class women are very funny. You know, women are very funny. Who says women aren't funny? Men do. But women are very funny. And I think you've really captured the humour of kind of almost desperation that has gone into a lot of these works. Thank you. That was really important. And there was so much. I really felt like this is it. This is the one chance I have to make a massive exhibition. They're going to let me do what I want. You know, I don't know what happens next with my career, but I kind of really went for it and worked really closely on the design and on the book and on the podcast and on on that kind of feeling. And I wanted it to respect the women, but also to be slightly haphazard because so often we're having to patch things together. You know, we're having to kind of work at the very edge of finance, of our kind of mental health, of um, our nervous system to be able to kind of make it through the world. And that was important to me, that sense of humour. But I think also the thing you noticed about having so much, so much depth is also because I wanted to get rid of that sense of hierarchy. And I think what art history does or certainly used to do is go right we are curators and we have decided that these five things are the best things and you shouldn't worry about anything else because you're not clever enough to know about it because we have decided that these five are the best and I really wanted to smash that down and to go actually why don't we look at a zine next to a poster next to a film next to a painting and you decide like you decide what's important and get stuck in and you, you do have to get stuck in. There was a lot of reading, a lot of exploring. Like I said, a lot of giggling. There's one, and I did take a photo of it, from an aid memoir, obviously, because I knew I was chatting to you. But it's a picture of sort of women chatting. And it says, lesbians are coming out in full force. And then there's a little cat, and the cat is going, lesbians are everywhere. And I, I've thought about it so much and laughed about <laughs> that picture so much. Yeah, and the, the posters, that's a sea red poster and they, they made my favourite image in the show, which is the, um, actually, well, no, it probably is my favourite image, uh, which is the, the poster about Margaret Thatcher and it says, a message to the women of our nation and coming out of her mouth is a bubble that says tough. Yeah. And that for me yeah. just really encapsulates that the humour of women in just, you know, confronting this character but not taking her too seriously, even though she's destroying the world around you. Absolutely. Well, I was brought by a single mum under Thatcher as well. And yeah, she wasn't a fan, was she? She was not a fan. No. But also, I think what you've really captured about the work is this real punk ethos behind a lot of that work. And they were really seen as controversial at the time, weren't they? It was fascinating reading about all of the police raids that kept closing the exhibitions down. Can you tell the listeners a little bit more about the response to the works at the time? Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, you know, things have changed so much in the last, well, things have, many things haven't changed at all. And I think the demands that the women were demanding in 1970 are really similar to the demands we would have now. Childcare, abortion and contraception. Yeah, it's wild. Um, and equal pay. Yes. And freedom from violence. You know, it really is everything we're still fighting for. Um, but I think it was really important that a younger, I wanted a younger audience to to understand how hostile the kind of scene was. And and I think what's what's really important is that in the last 30 or 40 years in the UK, we have developed a commercial art scene. And that commercial art scene that 
you know, began in the late 80s, was really established in the 90s. It was brand new. And I think so a younger audience or a visual art audience or a younger artist audience think it's always been like that. There's always been this kind of commercial possibility. It wasn't there. And for these women, it certainly wasn't there. There was not a commercial gallery that was going to represent you. Maybe if you were Barbara Hepworth, maybe if you were Kim Lim, you know, brilliant artists making kind of conceptual or sculptural works, who I think are fantastic. But if you were making work about your uterus or about childcare or about your experiences of racism and discrimination, no one gave a shit. What was also really fascinating to me during the research was that, you know, I wanted this to be a really uh, nationwide exhibition because I'm Scottish and I always get really annoyed about the kind of um, obsession with London. But of course, uh, a lot of people come to London because that's where you come to uh you know, the streets are paved with gold and that's um, kind of where you go. So in London, in the 70s and 80s, there were a huge amount of radical spaces, as there were in other places like Birmingham, Glasgow, Leeds, places like that. But there was a huge amount of activity, but it was happening at places like the ICA. It wasn't happening at Tate um, or any of those major institutions. And those exhibitions that were shut down by the police, they were a bit earlier. So they were in 1973, there was an exhibition by Penny Slinger um, at Flowers Gallery. And then in, and before that, in 1971, um, an exhibition with Margaret Harrison at Motive Editions. And the police literally walked in and said, this is inappropriate and shut the exhibitions down and Canal. took the work. Yeah. So some of the work was given back, some wasn't. Some, Margaret Harrison talks in our podcast about some being nicked by the police, like a work that never came back. Uh, that's really interesting because there's one that I was like, well, where is that work? Because it wasn't the women's nudity that offended the police. They took the male nudity. Yeah, that's the one that and went that missing. was just confiscated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Can you imagine that now? Can you imagine the police coming to an exhibition? And and for people who are listening but haven't seen the show, the images we're talking about are drawings. <laughs> so could fantasy. Yeah. And in the case of Penny Slinger, there are images where she is a bride and she's sitting and a couple, she has her legs apart. And there are collaged images in front of her vulva. So there are things that suggest her a biology, but there's nothing explicit. But it's it was too porn. much for the it's time. It's not like no. what was available. Like, it's the... not like the bloody adverts for washing up liquid that you got at the time. You know, that was yeah. so suggestive, so hypersexualized. But yeah, it was a really different place for making work. Yeah. I want to talk about women's bodies, one, because we're standard issue and like the body and agency is so important to women. But many of the works are on the artist's body or involve her body or she's talking about her body or she's been inspired by her body. There's quite a lot of nudity or references to nudity. And I I mean, I have my own theories as to why that is, but I am not an art expert like you. So I would love to hear your thoughts on why that was so prolific and why it was seen as so radical and rebellious. Do you know, no one has brought that up about the show so far. And actually, I'm struggling. I'm struggling to think. Was there a lot of nudity? Boobs, mainly. Are there, are there a lot of boobs? Quite a lot of boobs. Yeah. <laughs> no, I hadn't thought about it so much. I mean, I guess there's... It's very active nudity. Oh. There's like the, oh, yeah, the film definitely. by Rabina Rose where she's giving birth. Um, so there's a lot of kind of visibility of her body. I guess it's about about material, about access to material. And if you don't have much, you always have 
that. Mm -hmm. And for other artists, it would be about exploring the way that that body has been dominated. So someone like Cozy Fanny Tutti with a work uh, like Incognito, where she Cozy worked as a, a sex worker as part of her art practice, and she was a stripper. And there's a series of works that show her um, kind of derobing from a costume. It's very beautiful, kind of stylized photographs. So she is definitely thinking about the body and kind of power and control and sexuality. But then there were also perhaps more lighthearted works like uh, the neonaturists who, well, naturists, yeah, they yeah. are naturists. They still work. They're in their 60s and they still um, are performant. They still perform. My partner actually performed with them a couple of years ago. And um, they needed they needed a man, and I was like, "Come here, Andy. You've got to go and work with the neonatrius." <laughs> He's like, "All right." They, I remember them saying to me, and I I, uh, I haven't talked to them about this for a while, but it really struck with me. So I hope they don't mind me saying it. But they were talking about going to clubs like the Fridge and Brixton and the Blitz, and they were saying how you know it's a, the early eighties. Everyone's super cool, really skinny, wearing really fashionable clothes, and they always just felt like kind of a bit hippieish and a bit like they didn't fit in. So they thought well, screw it, we'll just take off our clothes and paint our bodies and, um, you know, bring those into the space. And I I love that, that kind of rebellion for me that is just about being completely who you are and really not caring about standards or expectations. I kind of, yeah, I love that. I loved it as well because you go to art galleries, there are loads of women with their clothes off or depictions, but it's always a bloke who's done it. And I love that they were reclaiming the muse almost. Yeah. And, and actually, that, that was a really important detail for me about the show, which people won't realise, but there is no male gaze in the exhibition. So even the documentary photography, all of it is by a woman. There isn't a single male perspective, which I really love about it. How long does it take to put all of this together then when you were being so meticulous about like where the gaze came from and who did what? About five years. Wow. Um, Congratulations. So, yeah, there was a there was a gap. I took leave to care for my mum. And then there was COVID. So it was, you know, a bit stilted. But I would say I pitched it in 2017. And I been working on it since then, but then really actively doing studio visits since, you know, late 2020. And was it hard to track down a lot of the work? I don't know. I, I ex yeah, probably yes. In terms of normal museum work, yes. Um, but I sort of knew it was going to be like that. So normally we loan from museums or we loan from our own collections or, you know, borrow from our own collections, but hardly any of the work came from our collection, like a tiny amount. So most of it came from artists' studios. So I had to do a lot of trips all around the country to kind of find a lot of the work. And then we had to get a lot of it conserved. So a huge amount of the budget, which I'm really happy about, went on conservation of artwork, you know, stuff that you wouldn't have been able to see before will now be able to have a life past the exhibition again. Oh, that's glorious. What, what a wonderful legacy. That's amazing. And it covers 20 years. You said this earlier, 20 years of activist art. And you also take in lots of threads and intersections of feminism, which you mentioned before, like racism, ableism, which I was really pleased to see you tackling as well, single mums, Thatcher, Green and Common. Loads of stuff is brought together. Quite often when you see an exhibition that is about women, it's like, well, women are all just one homogenous blob. Feminism is just one homogenous blob. Is that something that you desperately wanted to get across that that is not the case? Yeah, it was so important. And also because, you know, this is a really complex social political history. And I think one of the things people have criticised about the exhibition, which I really welcome, is they feel that the work of women of colour is in 
perhaps too uh, contained to two rooms than the exhibition. Um, so there's two rooms that really focus on the work of women yeah. of colour, though I tried my absolute hardest to integrate it into every room. That is because I wanted to tell a complicated story because it is complicated. So I had two choices. I could make the exhibition thematic and say, okay, room one is about mothers, room two is about Thatcher, blah, blah, blah. You know, and it's something like that. Or I could do a chronological history and start at one point and end at the other. And to me, I really felt like to take an audience on this journey, for them to have the like capacity to kind of take in all this information, it needed to be linear and it needed to kind of have this clarity. But that means you get stuck with some really uncomfortable truths, which yeah. are things like the feminist work of women of colour isn't really visible until the late 70s in the UK. Of course, those women are making extraordinary work in different traditions and kind of modernist traditions or others. But in terms of feminism, feminist artwork, it's not visible until the late 70s in our galleries till the punk room. And that is something that it's really uncomfortable to find out about yourself and your art history. Um, but I wanted it to be kind of laid bare. So what we tried to do is to then foreground the activism of different groups at different points. So we start to talk about the activism of women of colour really early on in the first room. Um, and similarly, we talk about the work of trans women artists um, in the first room, which again is a really limited history because of the kind of political social scene in the UK at the, the time. A lot of these women didn't agree. They didn't get on. A lot of them still don't agree with each other about things. But it was important to me to show that you don't have to agree with each other to be trying to move the cause forward. Like we can hold different positions within feminism and still respect each other and treat each other well and fight for a kind of common good. Oh, yes. Uh, here, here. I mean, and again, not everyone agrees with that, but that's that's how I feel about it. And that's how it came across. And also, it says this in your afterword, there is no single definition of feminist art. No. So I imagine you'll have people who would be like, is that art? And you're like, yeah, that's art. Or, you know, this might not be the painting that some people would expect, but that little scrap of collage put together and posted to someone because you want to talk about women is art. Of course it is. Yeah, it's mostly men, as you can imagine, that have <laughs> been asking that question about whether it's art or not. Just roll my eyes. <laughs> We covered this earlier, so many of the themes that you cover so brilliantly or the women cover and are asking about and shouting about and fighting for in this exhibition that runs from 1970 to 1990 are just still still there, still happening. So I wondered, would you like to follow up with a contemporary exhibition of feminist arts? No, I think what I would like to do, I've been thinking about this. So there's two things. I'd like to make a massive exhibition, well, three things. <laughs> Should I just give you my if anyone wants to give me a job so I'd like to make an exhibition about disability arts movement in the UK oh, amazing. really in depth cool. one, in the same kind of vein I'd like to make an exhibition about uh, women in health about women in health in the UK thinking about access um, yeah there's a lot to say about that oh god women um, in oh, medicine yes please yes yeah, to both women of these in medicine, so far because yeah. there's been so many brilliant books like Invi I'm looking at Invisible Women right now and then there's oh, God, there's another fantastic book that came out recently. About I've got Rebel Bodies. That's good. Rebel Bodies. There was something else. But, but anyway, I just think that there is a show in that that has to be made soon. But I would also like to make exactly the same show as I just made, but with 114 different artists. Because there were so many that I couldn't include that I would love to just make. Because everyone's like, oh, but what about this person? What about that person? I'm like, I know. I know. Let <laughs> me do it again. 
I'll make you a completely different show, but covering the same time period. And I think that would be really interesting to do. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm up for all three of those, Lindsay. Crack on. Excellent. <laughs> so I know you said constellations rather than stars, but you've got to tell you've got to tell the listeners about the porter cabin. I can't not let you tell them about the porter cabin. <laughs> so it's not a porter cabin; it's a prefab. So uh, it's a prefab that is a replica of a work that was made in 1976 by an artist called Bobby Baker. So Bobby is an amazing performance artist. She is alive and kicking, still making really big, ambitious work. And when I went to see her uh, about three years ago, she was quite reticent about the take coming to her door because we'd ignored her for yeah. her whole career. And that happened a lot with people and I was expecting it. I tried to work to a kind of feminist methodology for the show. So I tried to, which has been hard, right? Because you're trying to balance an institution that you maybe sometimes don't agree with while also putting yourself on the line. So yeah. I would, I met all of the artists I work with and I spoke to them about my mum and I told them like exactly why I was making the show. And we, I hope, trust each other. And it was like a journey of kind of becoming, you know, friends and trusting each other. So talked to Bobby and we talked about photographs of this performance work, Edible Family in a Mobile Home, that I might use. And then at the end of the meeting, I was just like, why don't we just remake it? thinking that'll never happen that's too complicated and it was it shouldn't have happened but <laughs> she is a firebrand and she worked with I can't take much credit for this she really with this, a woman called Caroline Smith who's a producer they really just raised a quite extraordinary amount of money and have organized the whole thing so it's a prefab house yeah 1976 uh, Bobby was living in a prefab house and she decided to make it into an artwork. So she papered the entire thing with newspapers and magazines and each room had a different theme. So some are kind of, uh, you know, teenage girl magazines, others are copies of the FT. And then she iced over the top. So the images, like in one room, all of the women's eyes have got little kind of iced gems over their eyes and the outline of women's bodies are iced round. And then she baked an entire family. So the dad is made of fruit cake. The, there's a baby made of uh, coconut cake. A son made of Garibaldi biscuits, who's in a bath of chocolate icing, and a daughter made of meringues. And she invited the public in, and they ate the family. They destroyed the family. Um, there's another figure. There's a mother. And the mother is made of a dressmaker's dummy, and her boobs and her stomach have got drawers. And even when the rest of the family has been eaten and devastated, the mum has to keep providing. So the mum gets rolled out every day and you can get sustenance from her. Well, wow. And so they, they remade the whole thing. So it was on for a month when the show opened and it's just been closed. And then it opens again on International Women's Day next year for the last month of the exhibition. Who did you eat? I ate the baby. Oh, that's weird. I know. <laughs> it is a bit weird. But it was coconut and it looked really nice and it was delicious. No judgment, no judgment. <laughs> <laughs> Women in Revolt, Art and Activism in the UK in 1970 to 1990 is at Tate Britain until April the 7th, 2024. You can get more tickets and uh, info to see it there by visiting tate.org.uk. But you said it was going on tour. It is going on tour. So it's going to the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art um, almost immediately. I think it opens in May. It's in Scotland for about a year. And then it goes to the Whitworth in Manchester. And we do, I don't know if you can cross-fertilise podcasts, but we do have a podcast that we worked on that was um, 
sponsored by one of our artists, Lavaina Hamid. She was so amazing. And she said to me, don't make what you think I want, make what you want to make, which is the most extraordinary, generous, amazing thing. So we've got a six part podcast where we talk to loads of artists in the show about their work. And is that available from the Tate site as well? Yeah, it's on the Tate site and it's Women in Revolt podcast. Brilliant. Lindsay, thank you so much for creating this incredible exhibition and also for chatting with me. Pleasure. Thank you so much. All right, Mickey here with an advert for better health therapy online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, is it? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution, in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up, and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. I am joined by Cassia Sinclair, historian, journalist and author of the new book, Race to the Future, The Adventure That Accelerated the 20th Century, which is a very exciting title. Hi, Cassia. Thank you for joining me. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Could you tell me what your excitingly titled book, tell me and the listener, I mean, I I already know, obviously, but could you tell us (laughs) a bit about what the book is about, please? So it's about an incredible journey that took place in 1907. It was conceived by a French newspaper who at the very end of January 1907 basically threw out a challenge to the automobile industry, which at the time um, its sort of spiritual part was in France, but it was still quite limited. Cars, automobiles, as they they thought of them then, were very expensive and predominantly used by the very wealthy, kind of like mechanical racehorses. They were kind of raced around circular tracks. They were very much considered a kind of a leisure and pleasure vehicle for the super wealthy rather than a serious form of transport. So this French newspaper thought, that's ridiculous. We think cars could be big in the future. And therefore, to 
prove the the limits of this technology are so much greater than and than, than how it's being used now. We propose a journey from Peking, now Beijing in China, all the way overland across 8,000 miles to Paris, what is the heart of the automobile industry. Who's up for it? So we put this challenge out at the end of January and then they say we're going to set off on the 10th of June. Who's going to come? Who's up for it? See you there at the start line, essentially. It's a bit like the... um... I don't know, the origins of the Tour de France or something, isn't it? It's just, it's not really like a it, it massively organised thing. Because we have things like this now, don't we? Like the, the Mongol rally, I guess, would be a sort of like modern iteration. But it started in a much more sort of ad hoc basis. But I guess it's sort of similar kind of vibe, like wealthy people taking, taking a bit of time out to have an adventure, right? Absolutely. And also it was a way for our manufacturers to get a bit of publicity too you know this was quite common at the time it, it was um a relatively well-trodden path for newspapers to create sporting challenges and this serves a couple of purposes firstly it's great for their advertisers you know quite a lot of newspapers had car advertisers at the time and it provides plenty of car related content that advertisers want to put their adverts next to but also it's great for their um, readership, because if you have a very compelling journey that's going to take two months, three months, then particularly if you send journalists along with the drivers, as Le Matin did, you then have journalists sending back daily or, you know, depending on where the telegraph offices were, sometimes it was twice or three times daily, reports back to the newspapers. And this provides a kind of a really compelling story for the newspapers to print every day. There are different angles on the story, who's winning, who's losing, the accidents that happen along the way. And it's a great way of creating a great, compelling story for your readers so that they feel compelled to buy your newspaper every single day for the next two or three months in order to follow along this journey, which they've become really invested in. One of the things that you're sort of writing about alongside this race is the geopolitical forces at work at the time and how this kind of rivalry developed to sort of improve the technology associated with cars. Was it a bit like the space race in a way? Is it companies and nations of whatever sort of competing with each other around advancing that technology as the quickest? Yes and no. I think so France, like I said at that time, France was, was definitely considered kind of the global leader, but that was beginning to shift. You know, already you have lots of manufacturers in America. And so France is feeling a little bit insecure about their position as the kind of global automotive leader. And so they were quite excited by this race as a way of kind of reproving that they are at the global heart you know not only will the the race end triumphantly in Paris but most of the competitors and most of the competing cars are French made or French men so that's really exciting to them however I think a lot of the, the the kind of conversations that were taking part you know globally about the car sort of saw it as an agent for peace on the one hand or at least overtly because they thought you know suddenly you know, it's a way of kind of collapsing distance. Suddenly you can get to all these places much more quickly and simply. Cars can go anywhere in the same way that railways can be quite difficult to build to certain geographies and they just go to, to railheads. You, c- you can take a car from door to door. And so it's a way of stitching 
face together. And so very often when they talked about it, they talked about it as an, as an agent of peace. However, in the West at the time, it's 1907, not that long before First World War breaks out. And so you're also slightly on the sly seeing countries start discussing the possibility of using automobiles in a war setting. There had been some kind of earlier examples that they'd been disastrous, but this race really is when people begin to take seriously the idea that cars could be used and could be really useful in in a war setting where there aren't necessarily good roads, but they could still have, have tremendous use and tremendous value. So women aren't actually allowed to participate in this race, right? But there is a section in the book about women and the automobile. And the first woman to obtain a driving license in the US is in 1900, Anne Rainsford French. But the relationship between women and cars is seen as kind of distasteful in a way. It's really interesting because actually car, I mean, for this race, there was no rule saying that women couldn't take it was just that no women did. And culturally, the, the relationship between women and petrol-powered cars was very um, uneasy. And the reason why I specify petrol-powered is because with a, a car that is run on fuel, you can take lots of fuel with you or possibly find it in Western Europe and you can find it in petrol stations or in apothecaries or, or so on and so forth. And you can kind of go anywhere. You've got this sort of freedom. Whereas with electric cars, you have to stay within a certain distance of somewhere where you know you can refuel your car with electricity. And so people were much more comfortable with women having electric cars than they were with, with petrol-powered cars at this time. Because petrol-powered cars were seen as noisy, dirty, venturesome, they take you far away from the home. And this was, like I said, a, a very uneasy relationship. However, there were women in these very early days of Yorkville we were absolutely enthusiastic about cars, car ownership, driving, who were passionate about it, and who saw absolutely nothing wrong in being drivers and, and car owners and all the rest of it. Culturally and socially, there may have been a bit of a, a tension and a, and, a, and a problem, but on the individual level, particularly wealthy women who were freer to kind of express themselves and, and worried a little bit less about social conventions and, and what that might do to their prospects and so on, they absolutely felt that cars were, were for them as, as much as they were for anyone and enjoyed them in exactly the same way as men. So I'm going to read a quote in the book from Motor Magazine in 1905, which I was a bit like, oh my God. It says, to think of the monster, as she called it, was to long for it. She wanted to feel the throb of its quickening pulses to lay her hand on lever and handle and thrill with the sense of mastery, to claim its power as her own and feel its sullen, yielded obedience answer her will. Now, there is a joke about cars. <laughs> Fast cars and the men who drive them. Which is still very prevalent today, but it didn't come from nowhere, right? Did it? It's, it's not just the sexual element, though, is it? It's sort of thought of as attention-seeking. There's like a brashness, in a way to the yeah. women who drive petrol cars. It says something here, again, there's another quote from the motor from 1904. There's nothing secretive about the motor car. It says, in effect, look at me and look at my passengers. Mm. And that was a woman who wrote that. Yeah. that so, so yes, you were very visible as a, as a female driver, you know, both because of kind of social convention, which meant that because of this uneasy relationship, people just looked at you more. If you look at newspapers of the time, 
you know, I'm sure equal numbers of men and women proportionally were having accidents, but newspapers loved reporting on women drivers crashing. It was a real trope. And I think this question of visibility and this question of belonging and who got access to this new technology was a really fraught one. But you do see women like, you know, Edith Wharton, who's the, the novelist, thoroughly enjoying the car and writing columns about um, her adventures in a car and being a driver and the pleasure that she she gets from it. Not sexual, just, you know, the enjoyment of getting out, seeing the world. And, and also she talks about the way in which you can discover the city in a new way, which I found really interesting because I'm used to actually thinking of taking the train as a bit of a freedom because you can just sit back and sort of do nothing. But for her, she was really excited by the fact that you could drive into a city along a path, along a road that, you know, maybe feels a bit secretive almost because not everyone's taking these these roads. People are taking the railway. And so you kind of get this element of, of surprise and excitement, which was really interesting to me. But yes, I think that kind of element of danger, the element of dominance and, and submission. There was also a real issue at the time because lots of cars often were sort of seen as it was necessary to have a chauffeur. And the idea of men often of a lower social class um, having kind of one-on-one access to the lady of the house as her driver, you know, lots of alone time. Mm. This seen as a real social danger as well. And there was lots of social commentary on the dangers that chauffeurs posed to the kind of the, the, ma- the man of the house because of the access that he was going to have to, 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 the, to the mistress of the house. In 1909, women were actually excluded from races by the American Automobile Association. And the rationale for that is that there weren't women jockeys. And so, you know, obviously, <laughs> if we look at sort of motor racing now, women are still I mean, I would say they're underrepresented, but they're basically just not represented. So I, I wondered when that rule was overturned. I don't know when it was officially overturned, but you do get women still racing, but they're racing privately. So you get the same thing happening in, in the UK at Brooklyn. So you get kind of private races that are being held in which women can take part. But a lot of the kind of official races, women are excluded. And so you get this, this idea that you know you you can do it but it's a it's a kind of spectacle it's its own thing and they're not taking yeah do it in your own time not ours kind of thing yeah and they get given names like the bracelet handicap and stuff like that you know and also you know because of the again because of social convention it's actually very difficult for women to drive so the the early races like Christopher Ellis was one of them you know because of the fashions of the time and what women are expected to wear not very car friendly at all it's difficult to even fit into a car let alone you know get to the levers and so on and so they end up having to kind of like bind their skirts up and and so on and so forth so it's it's really difficult but you do get this kind of tension between public and private this is overturned eventually but by that time it's sort of not too late but culturally cars have really passed into the kind of male sphere and, and racing is, is really kind of seen as is, is already very male dominated and so women who take part women who enjoy it women who are very good at it are seen as oddities or novelties and given you know often they're, they're you know entertained but they're not taken seriously 
I think it's really interesting because obviously we have, as I've said, we've not seen anything like parity uh, in the sort of motor racing sports where obviously we've seen other sports come quite a long way in quite a short amount of time. There's also this rhetoric that develops, like which you've mentioned already, and in, in the 60s it's used in adverts for cars and things about women being bad drivers. Now, Cassie, I should say that I am actually currently learning to drive at the age of 41. This has been going on for almost a year. <laughs> I'm not great at it. I, I think if you learn when you're a bit older, possibly you have a bit more oh, imagination. I don't for... think I could learn to drive now. I'm, I'm, I feel like I would find it really terrifying. Yeah. I love I love learning to drive when I was 17. I was one of those people who got my provisional license the moment I could and took my at the first opportunity. Not because I'm a real petrol head or was really interested in motor sports when I was when I was younger or even now, I wasn't or I'm not. But because for me the car represented freedom. Um, and I was really excited by the thought of being able to go anywhere as, as this editorial in 1907 when they proposed the, the, the Peking to Paris said, you know, that the car has the opportunity to be a vehicle that can take you anywhere. And that's definitely how I felt. Both of these things, the rhetoric around women being bad drivers, the, the lack of visibility of women in those kind of like motor racing professions, industries, whatever. It seems to me that things have not changed a huge amount certainly this is one area that is still very very dominated by men do you think that's fair to say i think it's true and i, I also think i mean there are women in very car dominated spaces both kind of you know trying to get that parity but also a lot of the very visible women in those male spaces and in particularly in the car world but to really sexualize and, you know, that, that can be a bit kind of exhausting. I'm not sure if you've seen this woman on uh, on Instagram who basically kind of showed, because you a little tour of, of a car like a Bentley and she like taps her fingernails on the wheel and, says, and whispers, <laughs> have you seen this? Over, oh, I'm going to look it really up. Wow. Odd. I'm, I'm not even sure the search term. I'm not even sure why this got served to me or the search term, but I need to find it again. I know that if you follow uh, Milwaukee Public Library, as I do, because uh, I'm cool, they do a <laughs> a joke version where they have an, a, a library outreach car, and so they kind of intersperse this woman going with their <laughs> with their Milwaukee outreach car, like winding down the the window. <laughs> That's probably your best bet at finding it. But yeah, like a lot of the the women in those spaces, it's really sexualized. You know, it's kind of it's not very realistic. It's not particularly inclusive, and it's not you know you're not necessarily driving the vehicle or you know taking part in this kind of very active exciting way you're young and hot and you're you know basically being a cheerleader and you know that's that's not for everyone yeah i mean if you think until like until very recently i think they have stopped it now but like the grid girls at formula one and like the pirelli calendar that they used to do which was just like greasy naked women basically yeah, until about, I don't know, like even five or six years ago. I can't remember. I wrote a piece about it for Standard Issue, in fact, when that change happened. But yeah, I mean, the two other books that you've written, The Secret Lives of Colour, which is about the history of the sort of colour use in, in culture, right? And The Golden Thread, How Fabric Changed History, which, by the way, both of those sound like absolutely right up my street. This book is quite a departure from the things that you've written about before and comparatively speaking quite a sort of masculine 
subjects area, uh, masculine in inverted commas, because of the way that men sort of dominate this industry, I guess. And also, in fairness, because of the way that men dominate writing about history, non-fiction books, etc., etc. I wonder what inspired you to write this book that you know you said you're not like particularly a petrol head what was it that appealed to you about this topic so I guess for me there is a through line between all three topics in that they are all about things that are everyday and that we take for granted but are often overlooked and I think that's as true for the the car and the way that the car has come to dominate urban design and geopolitics and the rest of it as it is for textiles and for colours. So for me, there is a a commonality where I want people, I hope that with my books, people will read them and it will slightly shift their view of things that they encounter in their everyday life and maybe have never really thought about before in this way. What I find really interesting is that everyone's like, oh, you know, colour and textiles, very female. And it's true, whenever I give talks about either one of my first two books, you know, usually the, the audience is 100% email. Maybe there's like one guy in the audience who's like very clearly and, and takes pain to tell me at the end that he's found it interesting despite the fact he got dragged along by his wife. Like that's generally, <laughs> I get that so often. Oh, and then, man. <laughs> but it's, it's a very interesting book only came out, you know, a couple of weeks ago, but I've given a few talks and it's been exactly the other way around. Most of the audiences have been predominantly male and sometimes it's the women coming up to me afterwards being like, oh, I've, I wasn't really interested, but my husband dragged me along. And, and actually, I found it interesting. So I, I, I think we quite often exclude ourselves from, from some subject, both men from textiles, which actually is really interesting. And, and there are lots of great textile stories that I think men would find really interesting. I, I wrote a chapter about sport in that chapter and a chapter about the Apollo 11 nude landings. They're both very traditionally male in inverted commas areas of interest and and women with 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 cars and yet there's no reason why um we shouldn't find cars interesting we live in cities where cars have determined the use of of space we we drive cars we buy cars it's odd to me why you know even if you're not into motorsport why you wouldn't be interested in the way that the car has completely changed our world over the past century that's whether you're male or female, it makes no difference. That, that, that's just a fact of life. I, I find that fascinating. But yeah, there, there clearly is this difference. And I'm, I'm already seeing it in the, in the different makeup of the audiences that I'm getting for the book talk. So you are the best-selling British historian under 40, which is quite the accolade. What other random subjects are you going to hone in on next? So I, I've got a few more up my sleeve. I had, I had a great idea yesterday that I texted my... Uh, my agent in in glee and that would actually take me into more of your territory and also sporting Ooh. territory that was great fun but actually i've got some ideas that are that still fit in with this kind of parameter which is this kind of area that i think really interesting just like things that are every day and yet have a fascinating cultural history that will hopefully kind of shift your perspective on your on your own everyday life I've also got a, a, everyone in the world. I've got a podcast idea that I'm developing at the moment and, and scripting. Um, so we'll see what happens there. But I I just really enjoy writing books and hopefully finding people who will read and enjoy them. So so yeah, I've got, I've got book projects and, and they're they're kind of on the drawing board. Very exciting. <laughs> 
Where can we follow you on social media? I'm on Instagram at Cassia Writes. I'm on Twitter and Threads, uh, which I haven't quite figured out yet, but I'm on there nevertheless, as at Cassia Sinclair. And I've got a website, which is CassiaSinclair.com. Brilliant. Cassia, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where the crowd goes wild as we discuss all things women's sport. So I promised you huge news and huge news there is indeed just a couple of weeks after I was talking about the new Premiership Women's Rugby League and how this season it had broken away from the governing body, the RFU. It's been announced that women's football, or at least the top two tiers of it, will do the same. The Women's Super League and Championship will form a club-owned organisation to run professional women's football in England as of the start of the next season in 2024. Now, as I said at the time, this is the dream. A self-sustaining league that is developed enough to have its own autonomy and not depend on the governing body to prop it up. The FA has been running the league since 2010 and it's been known for some time that this was the assumed and you know aspirational direction of travel. So the new organisation is going to be headed up by former investment banker and Nike director Nikki Doucette, who will begin her role immediately. And the structure of the new organisation was backed by all 24 clubs in the two leagues. While we're on the subject, I just want to say that at the time of recording, Charlton Athletic were top of the Women's Championship. And I think that is the first time they've been top of any league since about 2001. So come on, you addicts. Sorry, I digress. So look, this is massive, massive news. Is there a downside? Yeah, I think there probably is, especially if you hate the men's game and everything it stands for and you worry that clubs already have too much power because this puts the control firmly in their hands. Will it be good for things like increasing revenue, getting better broadcast deals, etc.? Yes, I think almost certainly so. Will it be bad for things like access to stadiums? I don't know. The potential problem we have here is that it is the clubs, not the teams, who have control. So, will the chief exec of Manchester United, whoever that is these days, prioritise the interests of their women's team? I mean, no disrespect to whoever that actually is, but no, they won't. And I I don't mean that as a criticism. I mean it as a sort of unavoidable reality. These are businesses and the men's teams bring in the box. So, My worry is that where there are competing interests, the women's teams are not going to be winning those battles. I don't know. Let's wait and see. Obviously, the men's and women's leagues are separate, as are the entities that run them. The competitions are separate. But I think the tennis world will be watching closely to see how well those interests are balanced amidst those chats around the WTA and the ATP sort of combining. But look, while we're waiting... You might remember that back in July, former England midfielder Karen Carney published her review of women's football, commissioned by the Department of Digital Culture, Media and Sport. In that review, she made a number of recommendations, including professionalism across the top two tiers of the sport, looking at the lack of diversity in the England women's team, restoring talent pathways, a new regular broadcast spot, equal access to school sports for girls. Tick, 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 tick. Yes, Karen, I'm with you. And so too is the UK government, who last week accepted all of the recommendations made by Carney's report, a mere five months after its publication. I mean, I guess 
they may have been waiting for other work to conclude around the new independent regulator, which was announced in the King's speech last month, or indeed the announcement around the new league governance. Who knows? But Culture Secretary Lucy Fraser said it was a defining moment and that the government would be holding the football industry to account. Missing the point somewhat, she added that we needed to absolutely narrow the massive disparity in pay between men's and women's football. What we need to do, she asserted, is to make sure the women's game is more commercial, etc. And therein lies the massive conundrum of women's football. That's all from me this week. I'll be back next time with more women's sports. Welcome to Rated or Dated. I'm Hannah Dunleavy. Oh, one second. Let me just take my glasses off. Welcome to Rated or Dated. I am a stranger. Wandered (laughs) in to join this. Listeners, she looks like she's wearing a cape as well, but it's actually a dressing gown. But (laughs) it could be a cape. That's right. This week we watched 1978's Superman, or to use the correct pronunciation, Superman. (laughs) <laughs> or to use the Matt Berry pronunciation, Superman. <laughs> you know, the strapping lad from another planet wears his pants outside his tights and flies around saving people. And yes, yes he does in this film. But blimey, is there a long lead up before we get to Christopher Reeve as Plus. the original titular Man of Steel? Because Superman is a whopping <laughs> two hours, 23 well, minutes long. Know. And a bit like with Jaws' shark, we don't actually see that much of Superman himself particularly given he doesn't appear until 46 minutes and 9 seconds in. He is, of course, a dual character and there's plenty of Clark Kent. Clark as a baby, Clark as a disturbingly muscular toddler, Clark as a teenager and yet still somehow looking older than Clark as a grown-up. That's superheroes for you, defying logic all over the shop. And yeah, it may feel like nothing much happens in those two and a half hours when compared to today's non-stop action superhero movies. But director Richard Donner's Superman paved the way for all the very, very, very many Hollywood superhero movies that followed. And it's no surprise to regular listeners that I do have a soft spot for Donner's films, given he was at the helm of one of my festive favourites, 1984's Scrooged. Oh, of course he was. Indeed, yeah. One of Jen's favourites too. Whatever it tastes like to modern palettes, Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster, the legendary DC comic book titans responsible for creating the Man of Steel, bloody loved it. Would they have felt the same if Elton John had actually been cast as Superman? Because I shit you not, he was considered for the role. What? We'll never know. How could Superman have flown with one of those ridiculously big hats he wears on. Yes. Hannah, I mean, I'd be quite excited to find out, but sadly, it's probably never going to happen now. On that note, I'm going to come in early with the usual have you seen this before? Because surely, surely guys, surely? Yes, I mean, obviously, I think I might have seen it at the cinema. I found a diary that someone had bought me when I was a kid, a while ago, and it said, January the 1st, watch Superman 2, was sick. And that was the only entry in it. I hadn't put any other entry in it. Merry um, New Year. <laughs> and I thought this was Superman 2 briefly because Terrence Stamp appears at the start and I got a bit confused that I bought the wrong film. But it gave me an immediate flashback to a packet of shreddies that came with stickers that you could put on something on the back when Superman came out. And it was quite exciting. Oh, cool. Jenster. 
Yeah, so I remember watching this on VHS in our living room in Charlton. So I was pretty young. In our very brown living room, I just have real like memories of a, of a very brown living room. And I only remember one section of it because I found it vaguely traumatic. Was it the car? Yes, that's the only bit I remember. don't remember anything else. Me too. That was the bit that when it happened, I was like, this bit I clearly, clearly remember. So it was the most expensive film made up to that point in time with a budget of $55 million. I think most of it went to Marlon Brando, to be honest with you. Anyway, Superman premiered in New York City on December the 10th in 1978, was released in the UK on December the 14th and had wider US delivery on December the 15th. Turns out that was $55 million well spent, with Superman bringing in a colossal $300 million worldwide. Wowzers. It set a new all-time US industry record for business during a pre-Christmas week, bringing in $12 million, and also set new records for Warner Brothers for their best opening day and three-day weekend. And there was more to Superman than the Benjamins. Contemporary critics liked it. They liked it a lot with Gene Siskel of the Chicago Times kind of capturing it for me, saying, A delightful mess, good performances, <laughs> sloppy editing, cheap non-flying special effects, funny dialogue. In some, Superman is the kind of picture critics tear apart, but still say, you ought to see this. Now, the makers had banked on all of this, and they filmed Superman 2 at the same time as the <laughs> first part of the story. That's balls for you, eh? And also explains why there's a very odd little bit of Terrence Stamp at the beginning and then a little trailer at the very end of the credits, which I'm guessing you didn't watch to the end of because you'd already sat through two and a half hours of Superman. (laughs) It bagged an Oscar for its special effects. Wow. (laughs) And while John Williams lost out on an Academy Award for his score, he did take home a Grammy for it, while Reeve got himself a Best Newcomer BAFTA, and rightly so. It'll always be Superman to me. But it is Superman's legacy that makes it a special film, however slow and dated and sweet it might seem now. Back then, superhero films, well, they just weren't. This was an unknown quantity. Donna took one look at the original script, which was campus tense, and demanded it be changed to actually take its story seriously, and the rest made history. So, a little look at that plot. We open on Krypton. A planet of glass and sparkle and blindingly shiny suits. <laughs> I think I'd like it there, except for the exploding. Because, yeah, time is running out for Krypton. Superman's dad, Jor-El, that's Marlon Brando, barely has time to expel Superman 2's bad guys before he's bundling up his son into a starship to Earth and going big boom with the rest of his planet. I made all that sound like it was really quite fast-paced and exciting. It's not. <laughs> I'm filling that sort of escape vessel with innumerable amounts of sharp, spiky things (laughs) that could kill his child on the journey. I want my child to be safe, therefore I will give it a thousand needles. (laughs) It was a different age of parenting, Hannah. It was. They were very old, weren't they, to have such a small child? um, He was very old. She's less old. I thought she still looked like a bit old. Someone's judgy today. Yeah, well, quite Little Kal-El, in his cocoon of sharp things, lands in Smallville into the loving hands of the childless Kents, who bring him up as Clark and make sure he hides his alien superpowers, which his adopted dad Jonathan believes he'll use to fight for truth, justice and the American way. Good call, Jonathan. Can you see into the picture? 
No, he can't, because then he dies. And Clark Slips. immediately abandons his adopted mum and the farm and heads to the Arctic, makes himself a mini Krypton, and undergoes 12 years of training by his biological dad's hologram before emerging <laughs> as the caped hero. Now, I've made it sound like we see all of that happening. We don't. All of this, by the way, all of this 45 minutes is really quite serious. And then, what, it becomes a comedy? I, I don't know. Disguised as mild-mannered, slightly inept and clumsy Daily Planet reporter Clark Kent, Superman is well-placed to save the day in various ways, particularly when charming, smart, spitfire fellow reporter and bona fide smurfette Lois Lane is involved. Do you think some of the training by his dad included, like, journalism law and that sort of stuff? <laughs> Local councils. Shorthand. Yeah, yeah because, so. I mean, yeah, you could just... Just segue into into your uh, yeah into your new job at the same time. That's interesting though because I think there's kind of a lot of journalism and in inverted commas happening oh, yeah. at the Daily Planet that maybe isn't as good as it could be. I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> that aside, thank you to Margot Kidder as Lois Lane for making me want to be a journalist. Although I can spell and uh, certainly wouldn't be asking the photographer how to spell. <laughs> Would ask a photographer how to spell or for anything Don't apart from me, photographs. Dudes. Yeah, <laughs> no. and you know things are going to go tits when there is an arch villain on the loose. <laughs> Hello there, Lex Luthor, beautifully rendered as a fully glazed ham by Gene <laughs> Hackman, who is having a lovely time. There's some sort of plan to use a missile to push California into the sea and start a whole new coast and property portfolio for Luthor's greedy bank account. But despite judicious use of some Krypton, which is Superman's uh, kryptonite, I guess, because it's become yes. common parlance, you know, slash Achilles heel, Luther's plans are foiled, mostly by Superman, but also by them not really being very well thought through. And also he employs idiots. So good one there. The plan does lead to Lois's death in that car earthquake mm. or oh, under the soil. Yeah, which also traumatised me which leads Superman, disregarding Jor-El's diktat that he must not mess with human history, mm. to reverse time and save her. Cue stirring music. Does he save her, though, or does he just get her out of the car and he just leaves her in exactly the same spot where the Earth is about to open a second oh, time? Oh, no, he stops the missile exploding so the Earth won't open. I right, don't think okay. that's as clear as it could be, the missile. No, I, I don't think so yeah, either. Mm. I agree. Yeah, it's not a film for details, is it? <laughs> uh, how many times do you reckon you guys have seen it? And when I, did you last twice. watch it? Oh, maybe twice. Oh, yeah, yeah. It had a lot. Le I didn't really. I don't really like superhero films as a rule. It had a lot less Gene Hackman than I remember. It could have done with a lot <laughs> more Gene Hackman, if you ask me, and a lot less Marlon Brando. I mean, when he's on the screen, though, Hannah, he is giving it his all. Absolutely. And Ned Beatty as well. Loads more oh, Ned Beatty, please. Ned yeah. Beatty is amazing. Hollywood's most uh, well-employed actor, I think, at one point, wasn't he? He was yeah. in absolutely everything. Oh, I think I've only watched it once or twice and not since I was a child. Yeah, so not for years and years and years. Oh, okay. I know you said you're not really into superhero movies, but did you have a favourite? I'm going to say mine was Spider-Man because he was funny. Although this was funnier than I remembered, and I do think Reeve is superb as Clark Kent, but Superman himself is a bit like, meh, fact. Just all He's American. a bit like a Mormon, isn't he? He's, yes. got this, he's really preachy. A bit Kendall. Yeah, yeah, and he's just really, really preachy. Whereas 
if you're going to ask me what who my favourite superhero, I like Charlie Cox's Daredevil. Yeah, I like a man that actually secretly might enjoy being beaten up. I don't like with Catholic guilt coming out of his ears. <laughs> I don't like the good guys. Like that, by the good guys, I mean the ones that are like I'm. I'm here for America and Jesus. He's like Captain America, but at least Captain America's quite funny, whereas Superman is just so pious. So yeah, mm, he's so clean cut. I think Clark. Clark Kent gets some good lines, but Superman is just, yeah, personality of cardboard, really. Oh, yeah. I, I disagree, actually. I, I don't really watch superhero films, so Batman is probably... The Batman is the Batman. probably the one that I've watched the most of. Yeah, Mickey's wearing a Batman jumper today. Um don't have any Superman merch. I only have yeah. Batman and Spider-Man. Yeah, so probably Batman, but um, I was surprised by how charismatic I found Christopher Reeve in this. Mm. Watching it back, I was surprised by that. Because he's channeling Cary Grant in Bringing Up Baby. That is what he did to do Clark Kent and to do Mm. that kind of fumbling. And even though he is a strapping six foot four, he does the sort of hunchy thing, doesn't he? And he has his glasses on, so no one's going to know it's Superman. Obviously, I'll come on to that, but I've got a fun (laughs) fact. A fun fact about Christopher Reeve's transformation to play Superman. He's very tall, but he was quite skinny, apparently. So he underwent a strict training regimen overseen by British weightlifting champion, Mr. David Prowse. Who did Mr. David Prowse play? Oh, I know this. It's Darth Vader. Indeed. He was the man inside the Darth Vader costume. Obviously, the voice was James Earl Jones. But I was like, that's incredible. Darth Vader trained Superman. It's what, amazing, isn't it, as well? What the fuck's that is that I'd never heard before? There was no superhero boot camp that the way there is now. There wasn't this kind of, like, Christian Bale, everyone transformed for a role. Mm. Reeve sort of started that. Oh, yeah, I suppose so. Going back to the transformation, I can remember, and I don't know which one of the films it comes from, that whole going into the uh, phone box yeah. and changing thing, right? But in this one... He just literally is just flying and yeah. he just changes. I that know. is what I said. That's ridiculous. Why did he start adding more props? Exactly. <laughs> Why did he suddenly later go, oh, no, 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 I need to find somewhere to change? More I was dusty. Like, Hang on. He's just done that. What? I thought he had to. He's obviously not like, what? He didn't leave his clothes behind. <laughs> so that's no. good yeah. for him, isn't it? Shall I tell the listeners? Yeah, so my mum, we're watching this and she said, You'd never make the connection, though, between Clark and <laughs> I said, they're literally the same person, Mum. She said, oh, they're very different, though. You know, he's really, like, bumbling and whatever, and Superman's, like, you know, really, like, confident and blah, blah, blah. You'd never notice. Anyway, I tweeted this, and then later on I said to her, I've, just to let you know, I've tweeted about you saying that you'd never make the connection, just, you know, and, <laughs> and the general consensus PS is, like, what the fuck? And she was like, oh, you wouldn't, though. You wouldn't. I mean, they've got very different personalities, but they only vaguely resemble one another. I was like, what's wrong that the same with face? You? <laughs> the same human being. What are you talking about? Before you make the Jack Nicholson joke, yes, I am my mother's daughter. Whatevs. <laughs> I am currently working on a French accent so I can turn up at your mum's house and rifle through her bank accounts just by like going, <laughs> taking my glasses off. I really want us to watch the film Twins so she can go, I don't understand the joke. They look exactly <laughs> the same. Oh, cat. 
So, Hannah, you wanted more of Lex Luthor, and I, I can't, I can't disagree with that because I think Gene Hackman's Lex Luthor is a brilliant comic villain. I love him. Why is he so yeah. incompetent though? He's like kind of Doctor Evil levels of just like fucking things up. Luthor. They keep calling him. They call him Lex Luthor, which I was a bit like jars a bit. I like the way he was just dropped in prison straight away. Like there's no, there's no procedure, <laughs> no, no trial, obviously. No. Yeah, that the ending was absolutely mental. Given that it's such a long film, and then I was just like, "What? It's finished? What? What happened?" <laughs> like, I took off the screen for like one second. It's very comic book, though, isn't it? That's how like Superman would do it in a comic book. He would just drop them, same as Batman in the comic books. He would just sort of drop them in prison, mm. and they're all like, "Well, if Superman's brought them, then it must be true." Because Superman is American hero fact; he is truth and justice. I enjoyed the fun fact that Gene Hackman refused to shave his head to play the famously bald Lex Luthor, and indeed actually refused to wear a bald cap for most of it and decided that actually his character would just wear wigs that implied he was bald underneath. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about Lois Lane. That was my next like, question. Was, okay, you know, go on. There's basically just one woman of note. That's Lois. Should we talk about her? Yeah. I don't like her. I don't know. Oh, I, just, I can't warm oh, to her. I don't know. Oh, oh, I really wanted to be Lois Lane. Margot Kidder's Lois Lane in particular. Even when she's dressed like she's in Heidi High. <laughs> she looks almost exactly the same. Or in my, I mean, maybe she doesn't because I've, you know, I've never looked at two pictures together. But in my head, I constantly confuse her with Karen Allen. I thought you were going to say Karen Allen from Indiana no, Jones. No, I think looks exactly the same. But yeah, I find uh, whatever she's called in Indiana Jones a better, it's sort of a more likable character. Marion, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a similarity there, for sure, I think, between Marion and Margot Kidder's Lois Lane in terms of temperament as well. But yeah, I think Marion yeah. is warmer. But I did quite like that they were like, we've only really got one woman of no. Obviously, we've got Superman's mom, his adopted mom, and Lex Luthor's girlfriend, Eve, who I would like to have a little chat about as well. But they have made Lois quite independent, a sort of yeah, 70s feminist, I think. She's spunky, yeah. yeah. Within the limits of quite a patriarchal yeah. film. Yeah, 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 100%. I liked her. I thought she was quite good fun. She's like a gal about town. She is. She's like a pre-Sex in the City, Sex in the City sort yeah. of girl. Yeah. I think maybe my problem with her is that it's just that, that she doesn't realise he's not Superman, which is just so <laughs> fundamentally stupid. Because she's a stupid. fucking idiot. Is that your problem yeah. with her? Yeah. But no one else does, to be fair. They've yeah. all seen him as well. Not quite as Not quite as close up. Yeah, it's yeah. true. It's true. And also, she's a terrible journalist. She gets Superman yeah, for quite. an interview and she asks him how much he weighs. Like, what are you? A cosmopolitan? Yeah, exactly that. Yeah. And then she asked him a question that I couldn't decide if it was meant to be about his penis or about his shit. I think it was about his... Do you have normal body functions? Yeah. I mean, obviously, that's my warm-up question in all my interviews. I just cut it out before the broadcast. Also, she asks him, like, what's your biggest weakness? And neither of them realise that it's absolutely idiotic to put that information out there. Yeah. Yeah, I I can't see through lead. It'd be terrible if a villain found this out and used it against me. So I actually think Lex Luthor's girlfriend, Eve, also has a bit of agency. Not Lois. Yeah, I liked her, actually. Yeah. <laughs> She's yeah. a bit spunky as well, isn't she? And yeah. she actually helps save the day. But I thought we could do a little jump from there to the sexual politics in general because there is some weird sexual assaulting going on all over the place. JR yeah. weirdly sexually assaults a woman to save her life, in inverted commas. 
There's a cheeky sexual assault on Superman before saving his life. So, you know, equal opportunities right there. Yeah. Yeah. There's the bit where they... um, Is that the bit you just referenced? Where there's the woman on the floor and they're like, oh, I'm going to give her a chest massage and uh, mouth Mouth to mouth. Mouth to mouth, yeah. And I'll volunteer myself to do it. And you're just like, oh, this is very 70s, isn't it? It belongs in a carry-on film. It really does, that (laughs) scene. But I guess I would say, like, in the sexual politics... Lois has got the hots for Superman. I mean, it does kind of reinforce a bit of a negative stereotype that, like, nice guys finish last and, like, poor old Clark, even though they literally are the same human being and they look exactly the same, bar a cow's lick and, like, a a pair of specs. It does kind of reinforce the message that, like, women only really like to go out with dangerous uh, men or whatever. Not that he's particularly dangerous, but, you know. Yeah, I think Superman's, like, the nicest guy, which is probably why Hannah and I find him really quite dull. He can fly, though, so that I is suppose true. that does yeah. introduce a, an element of um, of jeopardy. But um, you, you might fall, I don't know. But anyway, uh, yeah, so it does kind of reinforce that, which is a bit shit, but... She, you know, she's got the hottest for him. She's sort of like going after him, and that's kind of all sort of accepted and hunky dory. I don't know. There's that really weird dear diary bit when they're flying, and she's uh, like basically going, Dear diary, this is how I feel about Superman. Ooh, Can you awful. read my thoughts? Can you read my thoughts? <laughs> it's terrible. terrible. Absolutely terrible. I don't also don't understand how she's flying just by holding his hand at a distance. How is he holding her up? I don't understand. Just the force anyway. of forces apparently that wasn't always there there was another bit where it was supposed to be music i should say john williams score mm. is amazing it it's is the best brilliant. thing in this yeah. fight yeah it's so, it's good. so good so, it's so good. good yeah yeah so the effects won an oscar i love them so much who doesn't like to see a model village being destroyed by pebbles <laughs> it's amazing <laughs> just felt really bad for the tiny people in the tiny houses hannah like it looks shit, doesn't it? But you can totally see how in nineteen seventy eight that shit would have looked mega, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah I don't think it's it's so so of its time, and there are flaws in in the flying, obviously. But I think actually quite a lot of the flying still stands up. I still feel like, oh yeah, Superman's flying, <laughs> and that's partially because Reeve was an experienced glider pilot, and so he does move his body in a way that makes it looked like he's flying rather than him just being hauled about on wires. I do think there's an elegance to his movement. Mm. He flies like an aeroplane rather than, like, say, for example, a bird. He banks and stuff. That doesn't yeah. look as cool, weird. though, does it? That doesn't... <laughs> oh, my God, imagine if Ellen John played Superman and he flew like he was a bird. That I, uh... be... No, that's not what I mean. I mean, birds, for the most part, just fly, like, upright. Superman like banks like an aeroplane. Yeah, yeah. Why? Because he was an experienced glider pilot, so he does okay. it like that. <laughs> That's literally why, because they did tests with other people and they were like, oh shit, the flying looks rubbish. And then they did it with Reeve in the first shot and he was like, this is how I want to move. And they were like, oh, that looks really cool. And, you know, is he a bird? No, Hannah, he's not a bird. Is he a plane? Well, no, but he does look a bit like a plane when he's yeah. flying. He is indeed Superman. I just wanted to say... Because, I mean, when I looked him up as I was watching this, um, he do- he does appear to have had, like, a relatively distinguished stage career, which I did not know about. But I can't really think of, like, that many well-known films he was in. 
It's probably one of those that was a bit of an albatross, right? Yeah. That, you know, it's amazing to have been Superman. It absolutely put him on the map. Yeah. But yeah, the, I mean, people will just think of Superman 1, 2, 3. 3, heart-shaped Richard Pryor, hello. And then 4, and that's what you think of Christopher Reeve being in. I know, but I just I was surprised by how good I thought he was. He's great. I think he's brilliant in yeah. it. Yeah. I can't imagine that. He is my Superman. If I think Superman... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Christopher Reeve. For sure. I don't know any other Supermen. Henry, Henry Cavill. Cavill? Just the Smallville series. Dean Cain. Dean Cain. He was in the Lois right, and okay, yeah. Clark series. I quite liked that. Although, you know, I did also used to write, watch that one that had Linda Hamilton in it and The Beast. Do you remember that one? No? Okay. Yeah, the 90s. Oh, yeah, I do. Mm. What was that called? He was called Vince in it, The Beast. And did he live in a sewer or something? You get me confused with a Ninja Turtle. They all seem to blend into one. <laughs> no, I can remember it. Oh, yeah, let's wrap this up so I yeah. can Google it immediately. <laughs> okay. Superman. Rated or dated? I mean, it's just unbelievably dated, but I, I had quite a nice time watching it. Yeah, dated. To the degree that I was slightly bored with it because I criticise sort of Marvel films for being too much. But, yeah, this basically all just hinged on one set piece at the end. So, yeah, it's clearly dated because a modern audience would be just like, what the fuck, they'd never get through those first 41 minutes. So, yeah, dated. What I would say about my dated vote uh, is really that's only on the basis of special effects. This film has been made a thousand billion times and I'm sure all the iterations of it are, like, much of a muchness, to be honest. Yeah. I also think it is dated, but I think it's a classic. I do think it's yeah. a classic and I think it's a genre definer. And, you know, you can't go on to do wild and wonderful things without someone setting the standard. And I still think it's a pretty high standard. Anyway, what are we watching next? Oh, brace yourselves. We're going to watch The Wicker Man. Oh, oh, Jesus. Jen, it's not Oh, Jesus. It's Oh, Jesus Christ. Standard issue for all women.